All right. Well, this morning, as I mentioned, you know, we, we're looking to this next year, and it's all fresh and new, right? I mean, uh, even for us Buckeye fans, you know, the sun rose again. <laughs> it was amazing that that happened. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> but... Um, what I want to talk about this morning is uh, giving God our best. And, and I think that there's a principle that we can take that isn't just in the Old Testament, but, but goes through uh, to the new, but is primarily in the old, that, uh, that we, we can really take a look at. And um, <clears throat> as we consider that, um, we're going to be considering um, the, the, the feast uh, times of Israel. Um, and if you think about that, you know, we, we think of the, the, the feasts and you hear the word convocation and different things like that. And, and really, they were holy days, which, of course, is where we get our word holiday from. So, so they were national holidays, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But all of them were put in place by the Lord for two basic reasons. One was so that the people could worship and give thanksgiving to the Lord. It was, it was designed for them to, to uh, give praise and thanksgiving and all those different things based upon what he was doing in their life. If you remember, there was a contract that God made with his people. You follow me and I will take care of you. It was just that simple. And it was also to remember what God had done for them. So yes, there was praise and thanksgiving for, what, for who God is and what he has been doing, but there is also remembrance of what God had done for them. So just briefly, I want to give a list of the, the different holy days that we have here. And when I say brief, it's going to be very brief. I mean, I, to the point where I, I hope I don't confuse anybody with these things, but, you know, just because I'm not going to give much. But uh, the Sabbath, that was obviously the weekly rest day, which we would call Saturday. And that was designed for them to, to have one day a week as God rested after, after creation. Um, that is what they were to do, and that was the pattern that they were given. And then we had the Passover uh, and, and, or, and, and also the time of unleavened bread. Uh, these are feasts. Uh, it was the yearly commemoration of God freeing them from slavery in Egypt. And so we had the Passover obviously representing when the, the, uh, the, the messenger of death passed over the house, if the door was, was um, if there was the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and, and over the top of the door, uh, the, the death angel passed over that residence. And uh, that was when you had the last plague against the Egyptians. And that is what brought their freedom. And then, of course, they were told to leave quickly. And so there was the, the uh, uh, unleavened bread that they were to eat. And so then there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was along with that. And then we saw the Feast of Firstfruits that was, um, that was listed. And we're not going to talk about that right now because that's what we talk about all morning. And so we'll wait on that. And then in verses 15 through 22 in our passage, we had the, the, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. A one-day celebration that took place seven weeks after the Passover. And there is even a few similarities to that, but, but uh, that's, that's when that one took place. And then there was called um, the, the, the trumpets. It was the end of the farming year. Um, I had to explain this one a little bit even on, on uh, the screen here because you think to yourself, you know, what's, what's the Feast of Trumpets? Well, the only reason why it's called that is because part of this celebration, there was the blasting of trumpets. 
which is how it got its name. So it's what God decided to call it. So um, that is that feast. And again, it's, it's, um, it's, it's agriculturally based, and some of these were. And then we have the Day of Atonement, a yearly offering for national sin. This is obviously when the high priest would, would take uh, the very special offering that was given, uh, the lamb, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would apply the blood on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. And this was designed to atone for the sins of the people, a yearly thing. And then lastly, there was the Feast of Booths. This was about their exit from Egypt. They lived in booths for seven days. Um, I, I don't mean to make light of this or anything, but it was kind of like everybody in Israel went camping for seven days. Now, it could have been in your backyard or whatever, but it was designed to show how they were out, you know, in the wilderness, so to speak. They're out outside when they left Egypt. So again, some of these things pointed back to events, a number of these things. Some of these things were related to God's present care for them. But these are the different things that we're talking about. So what I want to do then is talk about the law of the first fruits. The first part of our conversation will simply be to lay a foundation for this observance by getting an understanding of, of what was done. You know, what, what did this constitute? We will then take a closer look at its meaning. Now, at some point, I kind of had second thoughts about the, the, um, the outline, this particular title, the word law. But first fruits was a law. All of these were laws. Yes, they were holidays, but think about this. We established national holidays by passing a law. But this was a little bit different. We can choose whether we celebrate or not and how we celebrate. The Israelites could not. It was prescribed to them. They were told, this is how you celebrate this holiday. So, for example, on the 4th of July, if the nation said, okay, we're going to set aside this day to celebrate, and you all must shoot off fireworks, okay, to be within the law, we would all have to shoot off fireworks. I appreciate the fact that even on, oh, I don't know, uh, New Year's Eve, people shoot off fireworks in my neighborhood, right, at midnight when I'm trying to sleep and have a message the next morning. But anyway, no bitterness on my part. But the point is, is that it's, it's, it's something that people can do how they please. I chose not to put fireworks up in the air while people were trying to sleep on New Year's Eve. But anyway, <laughs> so you see what I'm trying to say. God is the one, however, who established the feast and commanded the people on how to observe them. He established them. These were his laws, and they were to do it. So what I want to do is, is uh, take a look at... Um, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 through 11. Um, that's uh, part of what we've been looking at. It says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So within the Jewish calendar, first fruits was part of the week-long feast of unleavened bread. And remember, immediately prior to that was the observance of the Passover. So it took place the second day of the feast of unleavened bread. Like some other holy days, this was declared a Sabbath or a day set apart 
for no work to be done. Now, this wasn't a Saturday. But if you remember the, that, that, that phrase, holy convocation, this was, a, this was a separate, special day. And so on those days, it didn't matter what day of the week it fell on. It had to do with what was taking place on that day. And so this was also a Sabbath day. All right. Now, I understand we're going to be going through some facts here, folks, but there's a reason for it. Uh, I know you probably already know that in advance, but especially when you think of our younger people, maybe, or, or, or those of you who maybe are not history buffs, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm starting to glaze over here. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying this to, to, not to warn you, but to encourage you, don't do that. Stick with me, right? Because we're going to be building on some things here, okay? So here's the thing. The observance was pretty straightforward. This shows some people, even more recently, harvesting sheaves of grain. You can see them lying on the ground there. A sheaf of grain, uh, of grain stalks was cut from the field and brought to the temple to be offered to the Lord. This took place at the beginning of the early or spring harvest. And God commanded them not to eat any of the new grain until the first sheaf was offered, this first fruits. Now, this is also called a wave offering. And that simply meant that the, the priest would have taken the, the sheaf of grain and waved it at the altar or at the, at the, at the, um, the, place, the place where they burned the offerings. Probably was the altar, but anyway, uh, sorry, this lost my mind there. But anyway, he waved it instead of burning it. Then the grain was given to the priest. This wave offering was to have some things offered with it. And we saw these in the scriptures, but I just want to show you. And I kind of worked it so that we can see them pretty easily. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by, the fi made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. Now, when we look at that today, we think to ourselves, okay, um, that doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. What, what in the world is, is that all about? Well, it was, it was obviously we see here it was a one-year-old lamb, but it was about a pound of flour and about a quart of wine. And so those things were given and those were burned. The grain was not burned. That's the facts behind it. So now let's look at the meaning that goes along with this. The link between first fruits and Passover and unleavened bread is not, uh, is not insignificant. It's an important thing. Part of the significance goes back to the first time the first fruits was observed. Now, if you remember, Passover was told, they, they were told to observe this. But if, if you remember the language, it said, when you get into the land, then I want you to observe first fruits. And so I want us to turn to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. And I'm sorry, you can turn to Joshua chapter 5. In Joshua chapter 3, the... Uh, Children of Israel had just miraculously crossed the Jordan River and entered the Promised Land. So that is what has happened. They were uh, traveling around after um, they had left Egypt for 40 years because the first generation had, had um, rebelled. And so now they're entering the Promised Land. I mean, literally, they have just entered the land that God has given to them. And so we pick up this narrative in Joshua 5, and let me read for you verses 1 through 9. 
It says, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until he, we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Okay, just quick interpretation here. This is not what our study is about. They were scared to death. They saw God's hand on these people. They heard they were coming. You don't have hundreds of thousands of people wandering around, right, with no place to go and not get a little concerned about it. But now they're there, and so they're very afraid. So it goes on. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel against this, again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all of the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, and this is where it gives you this background a little bit, till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers, that he would, that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. And so Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed." Uh, basically, as, as we think about, oh, and let me just read this last part here. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal. I have rolled the reproach away from you. In other words, everything's good now. I'm pleased with you. You're, the people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. So this section gives a brief summary, again, of what had taken place the last 40 years in the wilderness. And all of the males needed circumcised, which uniquely identified them as God's people. If you remember, that was something that God gave to them that was a sign that they were his. And so this needed to be done. And so that's the background to what we're going to read now in Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. It's the next couple of, of um, verses there. And it says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain. On the, on the very same day, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Now, we need to note that this is a narrative of the things that God chose to record. The purpose was to document that God had fully restored his relationship with the children of Israel. He had brought them back to where they needed to be. As we said before, many of the feasts were tied to the land. They were tied to God's promises. They were tied to uh, the harvests and different things like that. The previous generation had refused to trust God and, and possess the land. They said, no, we, we don't believe that you're going to take care of us when we go in. Therefore, because these people were rebellious 
And because they were in the wilderness, the feasts were not observed. The, the um, uh, uh, circumcision was not observed. So at the outskirts of Jericho, the children of Israel kept the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, there's only a passive reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? We see it there where they ate unleavened bread. But we have more specific information of the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was the day of first fruits, Because it says there, right? Uh, and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover unleavened bread and parched grain. So some believe the Jews celebrated first fruits, then ate the crops that were ready uh, to be harvested. And, and that's a possibility. But um, I, I, I don't want to make a big deal about this. Um, but I, I do believe that there's some indications just based upon their circumstances that they probably were eating previously um, uh, harvested grain. Um, I do believe that they did keep the first fruits, but I do believe that they, uh, they did not eat what was found in the fields. Um, I will say this, I think the fields were full of grain. It would have been very difficult to have harvested and processed all of the grain needed to feed all of them. Think about just that process. Here they are. They had just arrived in the land. They had been resting, right? And now we're going to have the Passover and we're going to have this, this feast. And we're going to take all of this grain from where? From out in the fields? Go harvest it, beat it out, process everything? That would have taken a long time. Also, it's not a big thing, but it says that they ate parched corn. Now, this may be an English word that was inserted for some other type of grain or bean besides wheat or barley, uh, and it was described as parched. This meant that it was dried, sometimes it was roasted, but it would indicate something that was meant to be preserved. Also in the spring, the early grains were the ones that were out in the field. That was wheat and barley. So most likely, what they did was they just basically procured <laughs> what was sitting around from all of the people that had left this area and gone into Jericho for protection. They were on the plains of Jericho. What was next, folks? They were going to take Jericho. But just like many city-states, what they would have done was they had the city with the walls the people settled around it. An enemy comes, what do you do? You go to the castle, so to speak. Well, they left behind all of their stuff. This was a well-established community. This was a large city. And so they probably borrowed. <laughs> Technically, it was theirs because God had already given it to them, but they, they took the grain that was already harvested. Now, why, why am I going into this much detail? First, I believe the Israelites fulfilled the law by observing the first fruits. God remained pleased with them, right? When all this was done, he didn't say, oh, wait a minute, you guys have already messed up. That didn't happen until Ai, that little city. But I believe this signifies how God graciously cared for his people. He brought them into the land he promised them at the beginning of the spring harvest. 
What did they need as they were taking the land over? They needed food. <clears throat> but he also provided plenty of stored food for them to take care of them. You see, the land was just like God said it was going to be. God fulfilled his promise. Now, what you don't see here, <clears throat> or what, 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 we, what we understand that happened here was, is that the very next day, the manna stopped. Think about that. They ate of the land. They were full from what God had provided for them. And then the next day, there's no more manna. They didn't need it anymore. They were where they were supposed to be. They weren't out wandering in the wilderness. So that's a pretty cool thing. All right, let's get back to this offering itself. So we're talking about um, an offering, which is, again, a handful of grain stalks. And it represented everything that they would harvest within the next year. Everything that they were going to harvest that was coming up was represented in that little stalk uh, 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 gathering of grain stalks. It also represented all of the offerings that they would be making throughout the year. So some believe that the first fruits offering of meat and of grain and of wine was actually given to, well, first of all, it was given to God as an act of worship, right? But they also believe that it was actually representing a meal that was shared with the Lord. That's a pretty cool picture if you think about that. Again, this was kind of the start of the season. They were an agricultural community. Everything was tied to how God was going to bless them, right? Because if they were faithful, God was going to bless them. And so they come to the Lord in, in essence, the beginning of the agricultural year, and they say, and, and God says, give this to me. Well, it was given to him, but it was also given to him as, as a way of communing with him. I just think it's a beautiful picture that we see there. Now, there are a couple of other references to this idea of first fruits in the law. So I want to take a look at some of those um, to give a little bit fuller meaning, meaning to this. In uh, Leviticus chapter 23, we're going to look at a few verses here. Just a minute, I might have the wrong. Give me just a moment. go to Leviticus. Sorry about that. Leviticus 23, starting in verse 15. 
And you shall count for yourselves from the day of the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths to be completed. Count 50 days to the day, the Sabbath, and you shall offer a new grain offering. You shall bring for your habitation. You know what? This, this, this is not right. I apologize about that. Give me just a moment here. Because we've already looked at that. See, I knew I would do this, folks. It's actually Exodus 23. So <laughs> I kept telling myself, don't mix these two up, and I did. Exodus 23, and let's, let's start here in verse 14. I'm sorry about that. Exodus 23, verse 14. It says, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you uh, came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year all your meals shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first, of, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Um, so there's some other regulations there. But, but th this here is related to um, uh, a, a, couple of, a couple of things as, as we uh, take a look at that. Uh, they, they, were, they were too... Um, But folks, I'm sorry, I'm struggling a little bit this morning, and I don't know, maybe it was the fireworks, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> they were to do this, but there, there were some different names that were given. There's the Feast of Harvest and the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Harvest was actually the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Ingathering was the feast that was related to, um, to the Feast of Booths, Okay. So they are, they are not quite the same thing. I mean, they're the same thing, but they were given different names. Um, so, so, so this here, um, they were to give their first fruits, as you see in both of those instances. All right. Um, let's, let's, um, let's look to uh, Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18 Verses 12 and 13, it says, All of the best of the oil, all the best of the new wine and the grain, their first fruits which they offer to the Lord, I have given to you. Whatever first ripe fruit is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. And you say, wait a minute, this is something that's being given to somebody. What are we talking about here? This is actually related to the priesthood. So you see the word first fruits there, obviously. So here's what God is saying. There, there is a first fruits offering. We know that that took place at two different occasions. That took place at the Feast of First Fruits during Pentecost or after Pentecost and during Unleavened Bread. But then there was also the ingathering, right? Or the Feast of Booths. Remember when they camped out? And there was the... the um, um, uh, first fruits that was given there as well 
a little bit different. So what does all this have to do with? As we go back here and as we take a look at this, there were also other offerings that people gave. Just simply gave out of their hearts. Remember, these were specific holidays. And so what the Lord is saying is this. He's telling the priests, the people are going to come and they're going to give their best to me. They're going to give their best of their oil and of their wine and of their grain and all these other different things. Yes, there are going to be some that are set, but there are going to be just, just these, these first fruit offerings. And all of that is going to go to you. Now, again, why did I say this? So that we knew what the priests ate and how they ate? Well, no, that's, that's okay. The point is, these were the type of gifts that were given as first fruits, as the first best of what God wanted them to have. And then if we go back to um, the Leviticus passage that we read, the one thing that you remember, uh, or you might remember, is that as we were talking about this Feast of Booths, again, where some of this first fruit offering was coming from, they were to bring an offering, but that offering was specifically stated as leavened, or, uh, as leavened bread. Two loaves of bread that had yeast in it. They, they, they had risen. Why? Because they weren't looking back at what God had provided for them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. This was toward the end of the harvest time, or at least the middle of it, something like that. But this was actually same type of offering, a wave offering, something that was, that was waved over, but given to the priests. And it was designed to give thanks to God partway through the harvest season to remember, to show what he had done for them. There's a couple of accounts of first fruits that are also going to help us with our study here. I, wanna, I want us to look at... Um, uh, a, a couple of them. First of all, I want us to see the revival of Hezekiah. The revival under Hezekiah is probably a better term for that. Um, now, we're much farther along in, in Israel's history. The nation has been split for many generations. We have the northern and southern kingdoms. Judah vacillated between good kings and bad kings. And just prior to Hezekiah um, coming to, um, to, to power, the nation was not obedient. So revival under Hezekiah, under what he did, we're going to see what that looks like in Second Chronicles chapter 31, if you'll turn there with me. Second Chronicles 31. I'm just going to read verses, the first four verses for you. Now when all this was finished... And I'll get to that in just a moment. All Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images and threw down the high places and the altars from Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service, the priests and Levites, for burnt offerings and peace offerings to serve to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. 
The king also appointed a portion of the possessions of the burnt offerings for the morning and evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and new moons and the set feasts as it is written in the law of the Lord. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support to the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. So as we, as we uh, take a look at this, um, again, we're much farther down the line. We have all these things going on, but this phrase, when all of this was finished, goes back to when they had just observed the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread again. It had not been taking place. Again, Hezekiah had these reforms, and he brings back the feasts. They, they weren't acknowledging God. So the people and the priests at that point had repented and returned to the Lord. So what was the result? Let's look at the next couple of verses, verses 5 and 6. Look at this. As soon as the commandment was circulated, remember, he had the command. The children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundance the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah, who dwelled in the cities of Judah, brought the tithe of oxen and sheep, also the tithe of holy things, which were consecrated to the Lord, their God. They laid it in heaps. Folks, just so you know, this is every pastor's dream, right? Heaps of offerings. <laughs> but all joking aside, think about what this would have looked like. These people had had this wonderful, amazing reform. The result was, right, that they changed their ways and that they worshiped God. That was the result. And part of the response was first fruits, their first best given to the Lord. Now, I want to see the revival under Nehemiah. Nehemiah was called by God to go back to the promised land. He was part of that whole exile that took place in the land of Babylon, but he, but he eventually was able to, to leave that, and his primary task was to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. He had heard about this, and it grieved him terribly, and he actually you know, <laughs> approached the king, which is an extremely brave thing, because you don't come before the presence of these, these ancient kings sad. If you brought the king down, then you lost your head. Okay, It was just that simple. So God used Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and Ezra to lead major spiritual and social reforms, even while some of this was going on. So we're just going to take a peek in one portion of Nehemiah, and let's see what happens. Nehemiah 12.44. And at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portion specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. Folks, that wasn't always the case. And some of it was the priests and Levites' fault, frankly, because they were corrupted. But here we have the people. What were they doing? They were rejoicing over what? Worshiping God. So what's the point of these two examples? People who truly draw close to the Lord give their best to him. 
People who truly draw close to the Lord give their best to God. It's an outward sign of being spiritually right with the Lord. There's some results, folks. Now I want to look at one more example, and here's where we now transition to the New Testament. And it is Christ, our first fruits. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 15. Colossians 15. I said Colossians as a force of habit there. 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> wow. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 20 with me, please. It says, For now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since many... Uh, since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Obviously that all is those who are in him. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he has put all things under him and him is, is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, to God the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I want to just take a little bit better look at a few of these verses. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has, put the first, has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since they came, I'm sorry, for since by man came from death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. So let's first consider the logistics when we're talking about Christ and his death. Christ died on Passover. He was the Passover lamb. He did not rise on the Sabbath. He rose on the day after the Sabbath. Christ rose on the day of first fruits. Christ was the first best wave offering. <laughs> you think about that. Now, he truly was sacrificed. That goes back to Passover. But he was the first of those who were to come, right? Just like that, that sheaf that was waved, that was not burned, but that was waved, was an indication, a thanksgiving of all that was going to come that is the exact picture that we have of Jesus. It was all who were going to come after him, all who were going to rise. And this passage even notes, oh, and he's also going to take those home when he comes back, right? So he wasn't forgetting the living either. So now think about the importance of all those things that we looked at, right? Yes, it was definitely an example 
uh, it was a thanksgiving of God's provision as they're looking to harvest in the spring. It was, it was part of the Passover, remembering how God had rescued them. It was part of the unleavened bread as they remembered how they left Egypt and how they were able to even escape, right, through the Red Sea. All those different things. All these things would have been very, very fresh, obviously, in the minds of the people that went through it. But now, generation after generation, they were supposed to be looking back at this. And then we see that all of it, all of it was a picture of Jesus. Christ was the fulfillment. He was the one who was going to rise from the dead as the first fruits of all who were going to come after him into eternal life. So how do we apply this? Everyone who has ever placed their faith in Christ or whoever will believe the gospel has the promise of Christ, the first fruits of all who arise from the dead. Or again, like I said, like I said, also those that he comes back for. This is yet another fulfillment of what the Father foreshadowed about the Son. That's what he said was going to happen. So because of that, just like when we think of the Feast of First Fruits, we should regularly express our gratitude, our gratitude to God for the amazing promise made possible through Jesus. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate uh, the resurrection uh, uh, Sunday and, and those different things, but boy, and, and, and frankly, even on Sundays, many times we, we mention and talk about uh, the resurrection specifically of Christ, right? But we almost always talk about what he has done for us. But the bottom line is this, this should go way beyond that. It shouldn't just be about these specific days, but it even goes back to this idea of the first fruits of the people, the first fruits of a people that are close to the Lord. It should be something that is really on our minds a lot. It should be something that we express often that He is our first fruits. What we have learned should also make a difference in what we give to Christ. First fruits. Do we consistently give the Lord our first best of what he has given to us? Is that where we're at? We are giving our first fruits. Or is it maybe kind of mid-harvest? We're giving as we go, but it might not be the first best. Or maybe we're giving leftovers. The low quality, last of the harvest, right? Or is it possible that in our lives, God could be just receiving what's being left rotted on the ground? Proverbs 3.9 says this, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. It's an excellent verse to really sharpen what this is all about. And of course, we have the corresponding verse 
I believe, in the New Testament to all of this, which is, frankly, very overused, but hopefully will have a little bit of a refreshing in your hearts as we kind of lay it side by side with what we have studied today. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 10.31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what can we do to be a first fruits giver? First, I think that we need to view the Lord accurately. If you remember, it was during some of these times that God recorded this is when you had people that they, they understood, I, I can't be living this way anymore. I need, I need to live for him. I need to, to totally give myself over to the Lord because they saw who he was. We also need to view ourselves accurately, right? Who am I in relation to the Lord? If you looked at the children of Israel, did they have a lot of freedom? They did, really. You're talking about several specific holidays. You're talking about Sabbaths. There was the law, but some of that was even related to how people treated each other. But when you really think about it, and you think about our lives and all the laws that we have on us, wasn't that much different? We call ourselves a free people. So this idea of viewing ourselves accurately includes viewing our desires or how we view our stuff accurately. And it comes down to the fact that we need to remember. We need to bring to mind what we know of God and his grace and who we are before him. If we identify areas that aren't right between ourselves and the Lord, what are we to do? What did we learn in these passages? We need to repent. That's what some of these folks did beforehand. They, 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 they got things right. We need to grow our desire to please God and serve others and take delight in that. Take delight in service, in, in, in pleasing the Lord with our lives. Now, aside from a little joke that I made, if you notice, I didn't say anything about your Sunday morning offerings. I didn't talk about money. What you give to God is only, as far as your offering is concerned, is only a part of your devotion to him. If God has your heart, he'll have your wallet. It's just that simple. So we no longer live in an agricultural society, right? Right? Most of our offerings, what we give, is in the form of money. It's, it's just the way it is. So our giving can be an important reflection of our heart. But don't miss the most important part of all of this. Don't miss. That's why I wanted to build on this, folks. And I know it was a little bit tedious this morning. I'm just being honest, right? But we had to look and see, what are we dealing with? Not everybody in this room understands all the feasts. So what's the feast itself? What was behind this idea of first fruits? And as we brought those layers up, what we saw was it was supposed to be just, man, I want to do this. Even when it was prescribed by God, it was still something that we, that we should, should have wanted to do if we were an Israelite. 
Because all we were doing was taking just one shock of grain representing the entire field. But it was, it was the first of it. Right? And yes, it was accompanied by a couple of things, but the point was it, was, it was in thinking of all that I was going to sacrifice throughout the year when, when, when I sinned. Right? There's sin offerings. There, there, there's offerings that are just given out of gratitude. There's other types of offerings that were given that were offerings that were there for the priesthood and many number of things, but, but they were to be bringing those things to the Lord. So first fruits is giving God our first best in all things because of who God is and because of what he has done for us. So as I said, folks, I, I know that it took us a little while to get there. And sometimes I don't know exactly how else to bring us there. But we started off by just looking and saying, okay, here's a feast. What was its purpose? Here's this idea of first fruits. What's, what's, the, what's the big picture behind that? And now, what impact does it have on me? Somebody living in 2023 now, I got it right. First chance, I got it right. Living in 2023 Obviously, many, many thousands of years, even after all of these things you know, were basically done away with, they, they, don't, they don't make these sacrifices anymore, right? So what does it mean to me? Yes, it has something to do, and I'm not trying to play it down. I'm just trying to say we have to put it in perspective. It does have something to do with what we actually give. But really, it's about giving completely and wholly of ourselves. The, the, the first fruits, the first best of who we are. Is that reflected in how we serve? Is that reflected in how we worship? Is that reflected in the choices that we make at home? Is that even reflected in how we do our homework? Right? On and on and on we can go making application. Am I giving God my first best? Well, we can sit here and we can feel really guilty that sometimes we don't do that. Or we can say, wait a minute, why would I? It's because God gave his first best to us. It's all ultimately in Christ. But if you understand what I mean when I say this, we're talking in addition to it's more than that, right? It's, it's the daily provision that he gives to us. Not more as in greater than Jesus, more as in alongside of Jesus. I want to make sure you hear me say that, right? But God has been so gracious to each and every one of us. And folks, I just got to pause and say, I, I don't know where everybody is here, right? I know you're here, but where are you at spiritually? Where were you in the category of first fruits or no fruits, Right? Where were you on that spectrum? Can you even give God anything? You say, wait a minute, what do you mean? Well, someone who doesn't have a relationship with him, you can give all you want, but it's, it's not really for the Lord because you don't know him. So if, if that's the case for you today, boy, stop fighting that battle, right? Come to Christ. 
Place your faith in Him. Boy, when, when the people were blessed, and I'm not talking health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm talking about the economy of God in the Old Testament. When they were blessed and when they were joyful and happy, it was when they were being obedient. First, obedience to faith in Christ. Then obedience in daily living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us so many ways to see Jesus through your word. This is a bit bit of a unique one. It was the start of their agricultural year, the start of their harvest time. It was a celebration of all that you had done for them. It was a look back and it was even a look forward. And Lord, that's kind of what we do this time of year. We maybe take stock a little bit. Maybe we have a resolution or two. But it's still kind of a clean slate. We, we, we turn the page, so to speak, and we look ahead. And Father, as we do that, I pray that we'll think about what Paul said. That he, he doesn't look back. He looks forward. That looking back could have been all of the amazing Wonderful things he had already done for you. Some of those things we marvel at. But it also could have been looking back at how he was even instrumental in killing Christians. How he was a rebel against you for years. And thought he was doing the right thing. So Lord, may we not look back and be bogged down with either success or failure. But may we look forward. Part of that might be getting right. Responding in faith to a daily living for Jesus. Part of that might be just responding in faith for the very first time and trusting Christ. And maybe there's just some things that we need to prioritize better. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you will guide. That we will be first fruits givers. Giving of our lives to you as a reflection of you giving your life to us. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ today. The first fruits of all who will rise again. In Jesus' name, amen.